But this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. When I was little, my mom would make up stories to tell me at night. She's really, really good at that. Um, In fact, she does the same thing with our kids when we're with her, which is a, a fun thing to kind of be reminded about that. But I remember being little and laying in bed and wanting to be nowhere else in the world. So laying in bed and having my mom tell me those stories was was exactly where I wanted to be. There, there was nothing I could have thought of at the time that, that was better. And you may have had an experience like that. And maybe if you weren't a kid and it wasn't a bedtime story, maybe you at least understand there's certain stories that captivate you and hold on to you and certain stories that you love. Well, our passage this morning, it's, it's almost completely taken up with a sermon that Paul preaches in a Jewish synagogue here in Acts chapter 13. And it's a sermon about God's story of redemption. So basically the, the story of how God had been working for thousands of years to finally and fully save his people through Jesus Christ. Now, now let's go just right off the bat. Let's go to the very end of this passage because it's going to give us a clue for how we should understand what's gone before it. Go to the end of this passage, look at verse 42, and let's see the people's reaction to this story that we're about to look at. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So the story that Paul preaches in this passage, which goes roughly from Genesis chapter 12 all the way until the resurrection of Christ, that story of God's redemption It's one which these listeners are begging to hear more about after they've heard it. And I wonder, I mean, a a good question to think about, at least at the front end, I I wonder if that's the disposition of our hearts as we hear about God's story of redemption. So is this story, the one we're about to look at, is it one that you can't hear enough of? Is it one that, that continues to amaze you? Well, let's see why it merits that kind of reaction here in our passage. And and we're going to be taught at least three main points here. And this is what's listed on the the back on the outline. So first, God's story of redemption is beautifully complex. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, Jesus is the hero of the story. And then finally, an imperative, we should put our full hope and confidence in this hero, in Christ. So go back. Let's look at the very beginning of our passage, verse 13. Luke sets it up for us. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. This is a different Antioch than the one we've looked at before. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, we saw them do this in our passage last week. This is typically what Paul does. So he's a missionary. He's taking the gospel to places where the gospel of Christ hasn't really taken root yet. So when he gets to a town, if there's a Jewish synagogue, that's usually where he starts out. And the reason he usually starts out there is because that's a place in town where there's an opportunity to to teach and where people are willing to listen. So he goes there and oftentimes he'll, uh, he'll take the opportunity to preach about Jesus. And he's given that opportunity here in Antioch, verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So they invite Paul to come up, and, and this is where Paul preaches this sermon, and it's, it's, it's a big span. So basically, the sermon he preaches from the Old Testament, it spans from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel. So a, a long sermon, 10 Bible books, r- uh, roughly about 1,000 years. 
And that's, that's really pretty typical when you see a New Testament preacher preaching from the Old Testament. It doesn't always happen that way. So you'll see in Galatians, Paul will pull out even a single verse from the Old Testament and expound that verse. But when you look at these sermons and acts that are all sermons based on the Old Testament, it's usually a huge sweep in which they're faithfully preaching the Old Testament text, but just a big chunk of the Old Testament to sort of show the biggest themes. So, so what's the theme Paul's putting on display for God's people as he recounts the history of Israel? Well, he's showing how the entire history of Israel, with all of its drama and, and all of its turns and all of its ups and downs, it was always leading to Jesus Christ. That's kind of the main thing that he's going to show in this sermon, which is the middle part, the, the majority of our passage. Israel's history was always leading to Christ. So, so as Paul delivers this sermon about Israel's story throughout the Old Testament, uh, again, the first thing we learn in verses 13 through 23 in particular is that God's story of redemption is beautifully complex. It's our first point this morning. God's story of redemption is beautifully complex. Look at where Paul starts, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, he's talking about Gentiles there. So Jews and then Gentiles that are pursuing the Lord. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So he starts back at the beginning, but we should pause. It's instructive to see where he starts. Not, not only the point in the story, Genesis 12, when he, when he comes to Abraham, but but he starts by reminding Israel that they are God's people, not because of anything good in them, but only because God chose their fathers. So Abraham initially, and then Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, his son. And that's the only reason any follower of God is a follower of God is because he chooses us. We don't come after him, not initially. We're not interested in the Lord initially. Our sinful flesh always turns away. But no, God comes after us initially. It's God who does the choosing. That's what Romans 9 is largely taken up with, and this story in particular. So when Paul talks about he chose our fathers, he's talking about Abraham. Well, in Romans 9, it talks about God's choosing of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And he says this, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 15. What was it based on, that choice? Romans 9, 15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, so nothing in Abraham, but on God who has mercy. Of course, that's true for us as Christians. If you're a Christian, praise God, it's his incredible mercy and grace. That's the only reason that you know him through Christ is because he came and got you. That's what he did for, for God's people Israel. So this is where Paul starts. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. And because God had chosen Israel, he was faithful to them. So then Paul goes on here to recount their history after the choice of Abraham, back in Genesis 12. He talks about their, their numerical growth in Egypt during and after Joseph, who was, who was Jacob's son. But then every Israelite would be familiar with what happened. Israel got enslaved by Egypt. So basically, Pharaoh was looking at Israel and was saying, this people is getting so big that it makes me nervous that if there was a war— that these people might sign up to kind of be partners with one of our enemies maybe, and then they could help overthrow us from, from the inside. And so his response to that, his answer, was to, to put them in, in forced captivity, which is exactly what happens there at the beginning of the book of Exodus. But Paul is saying, remember what God did once we were enslaved. So look at the second phrase of verse 17. Paul says, he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
So he rescued them out of Egypt. That's the event known as the Exodus, where Israel is taken out by the Lord. But, but his love and care for them is really highlighted in verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. So remember, after God saved Israel out of Egypt, he's guiding them through the desert. He's guiding them to the promised land. And really, really quickly, almost instantly, they become discontent. They are not satisfied with where they are. They begin to complain. They begin to question the Lord's goodness. They begin to think that it, it would be better if they were back in captivity in Egypt. And, and of course, we regularly do this, right? Even if it's just for, for certain moments throughout the day. So aren't there times where you're discontent and where you're complaining, even as a believer? And how has God handled your complaining and your doubting and your feet dragging? Well, in Christ, he's been patient with you, right? The, the phrase here in, in, uh, in verse 18 is great. He puts up with you. And he puts up with me. That's because he loves us. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? He puts up with us. Now, just a point of application. The New Testament leverages that idea about how patient God is with us. It leverages it to get us to be patient with fellow believers in particular. So this is from Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the fact that God is so patient with us, the way he was patient with Israel, we're supposed to appropriate that as Christians, and then we're supposed to respond to others the way that God has responded to us. We're supposed to be patient and loving with others the way that God has been patient and loving with us. So just to, just to get more practical, you will never have to put up with your spouse, for example, or another Christian. You'll never have to put up with them in a more intense way than God has to put up with you, ever, right? The, the ridiculous nature of something somebody might do to you or a way they might fall short, it doesn't even compare with the way that you fall short. And yet the Lord is still patient with you. He puts up with you. So, so he put up with Israel in the wilderness, but then look at what he does, verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So you remember, that was the plan. He's taking them to the promised land, but there these, there's these enemy nations inside of Canaan in the promised land, and he has to destroy those enemies. He has to defeat those enemies. And of course, it's, it's analogous to what's happened with us. So Christ has defeated our enemies. Now, not, not, not enemies the way oftentimes our world thinks about it, like enemies at work maybe, or enemies in government. No, the, the three enemies that Christ has defeated on our behalf are Satan and sin and death. So those, those three enemies that Christ has bound that won't be able to keep us out of the kingdom any longer. And, and just like Israel could never have dispossessed their enemies, you, you could have never defeated yours. I could have never defeated those enemies on my behalf. It, it took Jesus to do that. So God defeats these enemies that are standing between Israel and the land of Canaan, and he puts his people in the promised land. Okay, so, so at this point on a timeline, we're, we're a little less than halfway through the history that Paul is, is preaching about here. And actually, everything that's happened so far in this story is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham back at the very beginning in Genesis 12 and 15 
and 17. He makes these promises to Abraham. And what we've seen so far in Israel's history is a fulfillment of some of those promises. This is Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. God says this to Abraham. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So this is what theologians have called the Abrahamic covenant. It's just a covenant, a promise that God makes, that he makes to Abraham back here in the book of Genesis. And there's a couple promises here. So, so first, he promises to make Abraham into a huge group of people. He promises back in Genesis 17. We'll look at verse 17 in our passage. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So God had grown Israel into a huge group of people. That's the fulfillment of this promise he made to, to Abraham back in Genesis 17. But God had also promised Abraham the land of Canaan as a place for his people to dwell. Look at verse 19 again. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So he fulfilled this land promise that he made to Abraham. But there was one promise he had left to fulfill to Israel that he hadn't fulfilled by this point in Israel's history where we just stopped, where they've been brought into the promised land. And that's the promise to provide them with a king. And that's what the next section of the Old Testament is about. The next section of Israel's history is working toward God providing his people with a ruler. So look at the second sentence of verse 20. And after that, after he brings them into the promised land, after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. You'll remember if you've read that book, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, it's after Joshua. If you've read that book lately, you'll, you'll remember the people didn't have a king. So there's this refrain that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And, and that's a reason that God gives us kings. So when we pray for the governing authorities and when we say every Sunday that we're thankful for them, that's part of the reason. That when there's governing authority, it means that people can't do what's right in everybody's own eyes. Authority is a good gift from the Lord. So he raises up these leaders called judges. They weren't as powerful as kings, but they were at least a, a stabilizing influence there for Israel. But just like Israel was, was discontent after coming out of Egypt, they were discontent with this setup too. So you guys might, might remember this. They look around at all the other nations and they notice all the other nations have kings so then they say to the Lord, we want a king, like all the other nations have a king, which is not a good reason to want something, right? You know this, if you, if you have children, like you're looking for a better reason than that. But all the kids do this thing. Okay, well, that could be the case, but I need something better than that. But of course, that's what Israel falls back on. They say all these other nations have a king and we want a king too. But God gives them what they ask for. Verse 21, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So he gives them a king, they get Saul. But Saul is not the kind of king that God wanted for his people. There, there's a moment in 1 Samuel chapter 13 where Saul offers an unlawful sacrifice to God, which he knew he shouldn't do. When he was doing it, he knew he shouldn't do it. And on the heels of that, this is what the prophet Samuel tells him. It's in 1 Samuel 13. He says, Saul... Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul wasn't the right kind of king because he didn't have a heart for the Lord. And that's not going to be a good king over God's people. 
somebody who is not pursuing the Lord, doesn't have a love for the Lord. So God removes him and replaces him. Verse 22 in our passage. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So, so this is the story of God's redemption of his people that has spanned from Genesis 12 all the way to, to 1 Samuel 16. God had grown his people. He had taken them through the wilderness. He'd given them the land of Canaan. He'd given them judges in order to have them ask for Saul, in order to lead to David, who's the human king God had in mind for his people the, the entire time. God's story of redemption in the Old Testament, it's complex, right? It's complex. And we know that from reading through the Old Testament and oftentimes being confused, like, wait, what is happening here? The dips are sometimes so low. And of course, the highs are really high, but it's complex. It dips and it winds, but, but it's always leading towards something. So, so like a great director of a movie, the Lord is bringing all those details together in the Old Testament. All of these things that he's going he's gonna to bring to a culmination in a way that nobody would have believed had they not seen it all come together. Of course, that's what you're looking for, right? In, in, in a certain genre of movie, that's what the directors, that's what the screenwriters are aiming for, is all of these twists and turns where you end up with something that is completely different than what you thought you were going to get. And it's only when you look back at the beginning of the movie where you see, oh, okay, now I see what was happening there with that detail. Things that at the time you didn't know exactly how to plug in, but then they all combined and wind together and they culminate in a way that nobody could have, uh, could have imagined. And if you've ever studied other religions, you'll notice that their stories don't hold a candle to this one. So, so if you look at opposing religions, their, their stories tend to be pretty two-dimensional pretty direct, right? There's not much going on in them, especially in the history of them. Nothing really builds. There, there's no beauty. There's no complexity in those stories. But, but see, this story that Paul just recounted, it wasn't written by humans. It was written by the God of the universe, whose, whose wisdom and creativity knows no bounds. So the story is complex. God used almost a, a millennia to form one man into a nation, get, the, get that nation to the promised land, Get, get his people under the human ruler that he wanted in place. But see, that's not even the best, the best part. So God's story of redemption at this point, it, it's, in a way, it, it hasn't even started. It's certainly not complete yet. No, the, the best part is still coming. Verse 23 is where the story really starts. Of this man's offspring, he's talking about David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So this is what Israel's story was always leading to. It was always leading to Christ, who is the savior of God's people. So, so the point of the first half of Israel's story was, was to get to King David. And, and then the point of King David was to get to Jesus. And just like God made the covenant with Abraham, he made a covenant with David too. Listen to what he promises David. This is back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Christ. That's a prophecy about Jesus. I'm going to bring one of your descendants and put him on the throne and his kingdom will last forever. It was all to get to Christ. 
It's a beautifully complex story. Now, you may wonder, okay, what does this have to do with me practically? It's a beautifully complex story. I get that. But on the ground, what does that mean for me? Well, at least two things. It means a lot of things, but we'll just think about two briefly. First of all, it it reminds you that our God is worthy of worship, right? He's worthy of worship. What he's done with this history of redemption is beautiful and praiseworthy. Same way that when you see a great movie, you think, man, they did good. When you look at the story of redemption, we're supposed to think the same thing. He did so good. What a beautiful thing that he's produced here. So that's the first thing we see. But but second, realize that all the, the twists and turns along the way, they would not have been welcomed by God's people. It was not pleasant when they were in the midst of that story, at least not for the majority of it. And most of the time, they had no idea what the Lord was doing, right? But he was still working, Of course, we can appropriate that because every time you don't understand how God is working in your life, as a Christian, he is working. He's weaving everything together for your good. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the author of this grand story of redemption, he's the same author of your Christian life. He's writing the same kind of story in your life. And it's, it's effective. It will happen. He will produce the result that he wants and promises for you. So, so draw comfort from that. He's the same one that's done this in, in Israel's history, and, and he does the same thing with our Christian lives. So, so God's story of redemption is beautifully complex. But the best part of the story is the main character of the story. And that's our second point this morning. Jesus is the hero of the story. And Israel knew they were looking for a hero Right, So Paul doesn't recount the part where they're exiled, where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom collapse. It's basically the second half of the Old Testament. That's what the prophets are dealing with. It's talking about why they're going to collapse, how they need to trust in the Lord, and then once they're in exile, how they need to trust in the Lord to work salvation for them. But all along the way, Israel, they knew they were looking for the heir of David to one day come back and save them. Well, well, by the time of the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it had been a thousand years since God made that promise to David. But, but the hero of the story had finally come. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So God's true king had finally arrived. The, the savior was finally here. Now, let's see what Jesus saves us from. Because you can only have a hero if you have a conflict. We were watching a movie the other night. The kids were watching a movie, and, um, and I said, okay, is that person the bad guy? And they said no, and I said, is that person the bad guy? And basically, it sounded like there was no bad guy. And so I was like, well, then what's the story about? Where's the conflict? And then it ended up being this sort of natural disaster thing, and the house is falling apart. I really don't understand it. But anyway, there, there was a bad guy. It was just more of an inanimate bad guy. But, but that's the thing that has to happen. For a story to have a hero, there has to be a conflict. Those two things play off one another. So what's the conflict in this story? Paul tells the people in verse 38, they may have thought, many Israelites probably thought, oh, it's these other nations. They're the bad guy. That's our biggest trouble. They might come in and and sack us again, right? So we need to build up the kingdom, but then there's these other nations. They may have thought that that was the ultimate bad guy, but that's not true. Paul tells the people who the bad guy is in verse 38. What's the conflict? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the bad guy is our sin. That's the conflict. That's our biggest problem. Jesus had to save us from our sin. 
And that's the thing that every human needs most. The world doesn't understand this, but the Bible explains it really, really clearly. The, the human problem isn't that we lack self-esteem. In our culture, oftentimes you will hear that. I heard that back in the 80s in school all the time. It was just so clear to me, like for, for us as children, like, oh, you guys need lots of self-esteem. That's the problem, a, a lack of self-esteem. That's not our problem. That The human problem isn't that we lack self-love. No, the sinner thinks of himself very highly, if you really think about it. The sinner loves herself very well. That's natural is for us to put us at the center of the universe. That The human problem is, isn't that our lives just need more excitement or purpose. There are plenty of humans who live really exciting lives and think they are doing great things for humanity, and yet their main need in this universe is still not being taken care of. You know, our, our main problem is our sin and the guilt that our sin merits, the judgment that our sin merits. And if you're here and you're, you're not that familiar with Christianity, sin, you, I know that's a common phrase, but okay, biblically, what does it mean? Well, well, sin is anything we do or think that is at odds with God's commands in Scripture. That's all sin means. Anything we do or think that's at odds with God's commands in Scripture. So basically, anytime we do the opposite of love God or the opposite of love other people, that's sin. And, and because God is holy and just and good, when the people he created, when, when we sin, he has to hold somebody accountable for that sin. That's the problem. That's the rub. That's the conflict. Our sin merits judgment, mentions, uh, merits us being held account by God. Now, here's one reaction to that, and it's been the majority response by humans. Everybody that thinks there's a God that they'll have to give an account to, if, if they're not trusting in somebody else to pay for their sins, then here's sort of the way that they're thinking about it, if they're thinking about it. One reaction is to say, okay, God, just give me the rules and I'll follow them, right? So I'll have to give an account. Tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. You've probably had the experience at work of a coworker being gone on vacation or being sick, and so you have to step in and fulfill their responsibilities. But if, if they're a good communicator, they can just leave you a list, and they tell you what to do, and you can do it, right? No problem. Well, a lot of people think that that's the way it works with the Lord. So, okay, God, just give me the list, and I'll do it, right? It's, it's that simple. But, of course, it's, it's not that simple at all. And that's what Israel found out. When God gave them the law back in the book of Exodus, God gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he gives them these other laws that all flow from the Ten Commandments. And Israel was probably thinking, great, we've got the law, right? Problem solved. Here's all these things. We'll do them. Everything will be fine. But that's not how it works. <laughs> so we have this. I've mentioned this before. It features prominently because it's a thing that happens every year. We have this window well in the back of our house. Our house is at the bottom of a huge hill. And uh, if we get a heavy rain, especially if there's snow on the ground and the rain melts that snow, that window well fills up, and then it comes into the basement. So over the past several years, if it's raining a lot, I have to monitor that thing, and then I have to either go out and get a bucket and dump the water or put a pump down in there. But the, the, uh, the thing was frozen, and it didn't work. And I mean, you guys know I'm super handy, but even I couldn't, <laughs> even I couldn't figure out this problem. So I just went to the bucket method. But anyway, what ends up happening is I sort of in a rush am throwing on these tall rubber rain boots and then I'm running through the backyard in the snow to get to the window well to empty out the in, empty out the water. But the same thing happens every time. I start out going quick and that boot kicks up some snow and it flies over and it goes down into that boot. It happens every single time. 
So that happens, and then I'm like, oh, I have to walk more slowly because this thing is going to happen. But the problem is the damage has already been done. So if there is snow in my boot, it will melt and get my sock wet. And that's just the way it works, right? Only one bit of snow has to end up in my boot to give me a wet sock. Well, it only takes one sin to give you a guilty soul, right? Only, only one, only one. So it's, it's not like you can sin once 20 years ago, which that's impossible, P.S., but let's say that it, it was possible. You sinned once 20 years ago. That's the snow that ends up in your boot. Your sock is now wet, right? If you sin, you end up with guilt, you end up a lawbreaker. When it, when it comes to righteousness in God's eyes, if, if you're going to go the route of obeying the law, you've got to obey it perfectly. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law to be righteous are under a curse, because it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So for us to achieve a righteous status before the Lord, we have to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Not some things, not most things, all things. James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So what should be clear to us, all of us, is we're lawbreakers. And for lawbreakers, you get no comfort by looking to the law for salvation. All the law can do is point out your shortcomings, how much you have fallen short. Listen to Paul, one more letter, Romans chapter 7, verse 13. This is what Paul says about the law that God gave Israel. The law came in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. So if you're looking to the, the works of the law to establish your relationship with the Lord or, or to maintain your relationship with the Lord, you're only going to find condemnation every single time. And just think about your own experience. Think about the times where you really take stock about how you're doing, right? How you're obeying the Lord, how faithful you're being. As you evaluate those different venues of life, we aren't all built the same, but I think most of us have had this experience isn't it sometimes so depressing when you do that? As you go through the different venues of your life as a believer and try to sort of figure out how you're doing. So, so maybe you would say, okay, I, I haven't read my Bible this week like I wanted to. So there's that, my personal relationship with the Lord. And I was a bit too lazy at work. You know, I sort of took advantage of my coworkers and I yelled at my kids. And I had the opportunity to serve my spouse and I pur purposely didn't take it but because I wanted to serve myself instead. And there's all these projects I wanted to get done around the house, but, but I just wasted a bunch of time on the internet at night, right? Aren't there, aren't there times where, where all of that sin weighs you down and you just realize, oh, I'm not great at any venue in my life. Look at the way Paul says it in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And that's the point here. If we're thinking about it, okay, it's all built on my efforts. My relationship with the Lord is built on what I do. Well, what the law says is you're never going to be good enough. You can't do those things well enough to merit that relationship, to merit that righteousness. You certainly can't do enough to cover your own sins. That word freed, it's in verse 39. It's, it's actually translating a, a Greek word that was used in the courtroom. 
A better English equivalent is the word justified. So when you see that word justification show up in Romans and Galatians and Philippians and other places in the New Testament, it's the same word that's being used here. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul's saying the law of Moses, it, it can never provide sinners with an innocent verdict. So a sinner could feel bad about her sin. She, she could even make strides to turn from it. But that sinner will always remain a sinner, even if it was only one sin that they, they committed. Only, only a bit of ice has to get in the boot for the sock to end up wet. And so the law can never say innocent, not to us because we're sinners. The law can only say guilty. So we need a savior. But praise the Lord, that's exactly who he's provided in Christ. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Verse 38 again, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law can't justify you. It can't give you an innocent verdict, but Jesus can. Now, now, how is that? Well, it's because of his death on the cross. Like we talked about a minute ago, your, your sins have to be paid for. My sins have to be paid for. But if we don't end up having to pay for them, then who does? So the, the, the Christian ends up justified, our passage tells us, but at whose expense? If we end up justified, who ends up the opposite, which is condemned? Who ends up guilty? Verse 27 tells us, for those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So Jesus is the one who was condemned. He's the one who was arrested and tried and crucified. He was the one that was found guilty. Now, that wasn't because of any sin in him. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Even those who arrested Jesus knew he didn't deserve it. They knew that he was innocent. And of course, this is Jesus, right? Of course he's innocent. Look, there's a section where, uh, where Paul quotes John the Baptist towards the beginning of the sermon. Look at verse 25. People think John the Baptist might be the savior when he's preaching. This is what he says, verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is worship language. Jesus is worthy, so worthy in himself that we don't deserve to touch his feet. Isn't that incredible? We don't deserve to touch his feet, and yet he died on the cross for us as believers. What an incredible thing. But, but this is worship language, which means Jesus is God. He never, ever sinned. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly innocent. He's perfectly holy. So why was he condemned? Why did he submit himself to be treated as guilty, to die for sins that he had never committed? It's because he was offering himself in your place as a Christian. He was offering himself to pay for, for your sins. We read from Galatians earlier. This is a few verses later. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ took your guilty verdict. He, he took on the curse that we deserved. On, on the cross, he was substituting himself for sinners. This is how Jesus is the savior of God's people. He's doing what nobody else in the history of redemption 
has ever been able to do. He's offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. But it's, it's good to be reminded, especially if you're here and, and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Christ, this forgiveness of sins, it's not automatic. There's a necessary condition for this salvation to become effective for a particular sinner. Look at verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is free. As, as Paul will go on to make so clear in his New Testament letters, justification comes by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone, not by good works, not by good intentions, not by knowing the right people, not by being part of the right church, not by taking part in the right rituals. No, no, getting that innocent verdict read over you for your sins, it, it comes about by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, this is the only way for you to get that innocent verdict read over you on the future day of God's judgment by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. A pastor named Mark Dever says it helpfully, says it punchy. He says, either your sins will be wiped out by Jesus or you will be wiped out by your sins. Those are the only two options. So talk to me. Talk to another member of our church if you have questions about that. If, if you're at least interested in, in having Christ take the guilt from you, that, that you're trying to absolve yourself in a way you never will, Christ can free you from that, but only he can do it. He's the only savior. However, the, the majority of Israel, they didn't recognize him as that. The vast majority of God's people, they, they turned away from Christ. They, they condemned him. They didn't believe him. Look at verse 27. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And this is a question that would have been on people's minds. Okay, Paul, so you're saying this guy is God's chosen savior, right? But, but the truth is none of the religious authorities believed that. Even the vast majority of normal Israelites didn't believe that. So, so how do you expect me to believe that Jesus is the savior? That's a good question. And it's the question that Paul spends verses 32 through 37 talking about. His answer, this might be unexpected, his answer for the reason these folks should believe that Jesus is God's chosen savior is the resurrection. That's the thing he goes to. The reason you should believe it, that Jesus is who he said he was, the resurrection. Let's be reminded about what happened to Jesus after he was crucified to pay for sins. Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But of course, that's not the end of God's redemptive story. The hero is in a grave. That would typically be the end of the story, not for the Lord. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. So he was dead for three days. God brought him back to life, never to die again. Jesus was resurrected. And, and this fact has a lot of historical weight behind it. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and appear to one person in a dark alley. The way that oftentimes happens with other religions, there was this one guy, he was in the forest, and he spoke to the Lord. And then he came back and he told everybody else about it. That's not what happens here. It's not a single person, no. Christ appears to all the apostles, in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people at a time. So lots of people in this first generation of the church had seen the resurrected Christ. That's not the kind of detail you add in if you're making up a story. 
right? If you're making up a story, you try to keep the eyewitness group as small as you possibly can because somebody will end up defecting. We saw a documentary the other night about these mob bosses where when a crime had gone down and the police start to get onto it, they just start killing everybody that knows it was them, right? The eyewitness group, if you're making up a story, if there's something you want to keep secret, you try to keep that group as small as you can. You don't show up to 12 people and then 500 people, or you don't make up that detail at least. But that's what the Bible says. So, so what are the options there? You might be a non-Christian and be like, yeah, this all sounds good. The gospel sounds good. But how can I really believe that this happened, that this man who was dead then rises from the grave? Well, you have this huge group of people that say that they saw him alive. Okay, so what are your options at that point? All these people had the same hallucination. Eh, unlikely, right? They didn't all have the same hallucination. Okay, so then you're probably dealing with one of two options. It either happened or they all decided to make up the story and then stick with it. Okay, what would their reason be for, uh, for making up the story? What benefit were they getting from that? Well, Acts tells us, and church history tells us, the benefit of getting arrested and killed. <laughs> mm, doesn't seem likely, does it? That these apostles who split from Jesus the second they come and arrest him to, to take him to be tried in the gospel stories, Peter, who is nervous that this 12-year-old girl is going to find him out, you remember that? This same Peter is willing to die. Why? Because he saw Jesus and he was resurrected and it changed everything for those witnesses. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. But, but how does the resurrection, how, how does it prove that he's the hero of the story? How does the resurrection prove that he's God's chosen savior? Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. Okay, so he's talking about a promise. What promise is he talking about? He tells us up in verse 23. And that's if you're reading the Bible and you see a verse like verse 32, and it talks about the promise or a promise, and you wonder, what's he talking about there? Look in the context. Does that word promise show up somewhere else close by? It does here, verse 23. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So the promise Paul's talking about in verse 32 is the promise of a savior. Okay, how does Israel know this is the savior? Verse 32 again. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God's chosen savior. That's a big part of what the resurrection was designed to do. The, the resurrection is the great separator between Jesus and and every other person, every other character in the story of redemption. He, Paul points this out. Look at verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. It's just a euphemism for died. And was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So the greatest human ruler in the history of Israel, David, he died and he didn't get back up. Right? His, his body decomposed. That's what it's talking about here. Saw corruption. There was a mouse that is seeing corruption now. You guys probably smelled it when you came in. You don't smell it anymore. Praise the Lord. We, we acclimate, right? We have a pest control person coming. It'll be fine. But that's what happened with David. He died. He stayed dead. His, his body saw corruption. Well, the resurrection actually proves something even more particular than that. It's not even that it just proves that he was the chosen savior. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He goes on to quote Psalm 2 here. 
He says, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the resurrection shows not only is he God's chosen savior, he's also God's son. Romans chapter one, verse four, he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And that's why the resurrection always had a part to play in this plan. It was always part of God's plan. Paul quotes from Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16 here. Look at verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So he's saying that the blessings David brought to Israel, they passed away when David passed away. But see, in, in Christ, we have blessings that never die because he never dies which is what God says explicitly in Psalm 16. Look at verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So, so the resurrection is crucial, right? That's the way God declared to the entire universe, Jesus really is his own son. He's really the savior of God's people. He's, he's the hero of this story. And that's a truth God intends for you to, to preach to yourself, to remind yourself of. So, so how do I know Jesus has paid for my sins? Paul's answer in part is because he, raised, he rose from the dead. How can I know I'm accepted by the Father? Because Jesus rose from the dead. How can I know I'll end up in heaven because of an innocent verdict for my sins? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And it's this, it's this resurrected, saving son of God who's the hero of our story. But as we close, Paul gives us a final point that's an imperative. He takes everything we've just heard and then he turns it into an imperative for us. Verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so that phrase sounds good, but what's that mean? What's that mean to continue in the grace of God? Well, for Paul, that phrase, the grace of God, is just a nickname for the gospel. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, I testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's, he's saying continue in the gospel, which like he told us in verse 39 means continue in believing in Jesus. And this is the final thing for us to think about this morning. Put your full hope and confidence in this hero. That's what God is saying here. Put your full hope and confidence in this hero. If all we've been saying is true, if Jesus really is the savior, if if the hero of this story that God had been weaving together for thousands of years, if that's Christ, and if he's the only savior available to take care of our greatest need, which is to have our sins covered, and if the way for us to be connected to him and his benefits is, is to place our full hope and confidence in him alone, then that's exactly what we want to do. We want to place our full hope and confidence in this hero. Nothing else in the universe can, can save you because nothing else in the universe can pay for your sins. Your money can't. Your family can't, your romantic relationship can't, the vacation you're about to take this week, it can't, your career can't, your physical health can't. Jesus is the only hero we've got. Now, there's, there's a particular warning to those of you who are here who, who are familiar with the gospel, familiar with Christianity and, and the Bible, but, but maybe not a believer. So maybe, maybe you've grown up in a home where you hear the gospel regularly, you understand the Bible or maybe, maybe you're an adult and you're familiar with all these things. You grew up in the church. There's a warning here for you, verses 40 through 41. Look there. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And this is what said, he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. 
Habakkuk here, he, he was telling the people they're in danger of missing how incredible the work of God is because they've begun to see it as just normal. And that's the thing that he's telling us not to do. Familiarity can sometimes breed contempt. So because you've grown up hearing the gospel, don't ever let it become boring or normal to you. It's probably always something you should pray against. But, but I promise you, the, the Bible promises you, you won't hear a story more beautiful than this one. You won't hear a story better than this one. And, and you certainly won't hear another one that offers you salvation. So pray to God that you would be astounded with the message of Jesus. And as Christians, the message for us is the same. We, we should be astounded with the story of Jesus. And we should run to put our full hope and confidence in the hero of this beautifully complex story of redemption. The, the story that is above all others and, and is a story worth begging for. So let's pray together.